Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. When we choose to source products, we are very keen to understand their carbon and social impact. And one of the most effective ways to reduce the impact of our supply chain is purchase items that have already been made and give them a second life. Reuse is set to grow significantly over the coming years, and some sectors, growth in reuse is outstripping new products. Reuse can be tricky business because items are often hard to find, they can have inconsistent specification, and there's limited data available about them. But this is changing and changing fast, and my guest on today's show is revolutionizing the way we donate and source reused items. May Al-Karuni, founder of Globechain, has built a reuse marketplace to manage and track items and bringing much-needed liquidity and data to the growing field of reuse. Welcome to Zero Five O, May. Hi, thanks, Bruce, for having me. It's great to have you on the show. So I want to go straight in. What's the problem with reuse and why aren't we doing more of it? There isn't a problem with it. I think we've just been programmed over the years to just consume more and more new things. And reuse actually wasn't a word when I first started Globechain around six years ago. You know, I had to kind of explain that reuse is just using something in the same way. Uh, People used to use the word recycling and you know how long that took. (laughs) <laughs> to get people to recycle. So I'd say that was the challenge. It was the lack of understanding of what reuse was in the past. Nowadays, there's a lot of changes happening. So I think people are more used to it. But I think as humans and the way technology is, people always want to do things more complicated. And then kind of reuse they see as like, oh, that's easy. But actually, it's not. <laughs> and what, uh, what, what, what are the challenges around it then? Because it's sort of the... I'm going to reuse this. And then there's inevitably a product or a problem or we're told there's a problem why we can't reuse it. If we sort of just step back from globe chain saying, if we think about the entire reuse world, what are the main problems in that sort of? Yeah, I think um, really like two things. One is a psychological perception of people having a lower value good. They always want the new and shiny. So I think from a consumer angle, it's it's getting that mentality up your head. And the second um, thing more from the business side, I'd say is policy and legislation or old school type of mandates in, in their legals where it doesn't allow, for example, in construction, new materials to be verified and new, reused again and also this government policy you know with VAT particularly you know secondary products you can't claim VAT back so it becomes cheaper and more cost efficient to demolish buildings and 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 dispose than rather reuse which is like crazy really yeah totally crazy and such an easy thing to change as well we tend to change VAT all the time so surely that change could be made I know right well we've been pushing it so let's let's see who knows we sort of have this idea of a circular economy and people go, yeah, well, the linear thinking is embedded in our products, but it is. But actually, I think it's much more deeply embedded in society and culture, this linear way of thinking, which is, you know, I was in a, tried to do some of my Christmas shopping offline uh, last week and I was in a department store and then out front, they had a load of things on discount in the tech sector, which were just in the tech area, which are just things that had damaged packaging. And they were heavily discounted because the box wasn't shiny. And we seem to have got into this mindset of it's new until it's 
unnew and then it's thrown away rather than it potentially having a second life. And you alluded to the sort of behavioral aspect of things. And do we need to start by changing the behavioral aspects of the of thinking linear and, and get people to say it's okay to have reused stuff? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, when, when I was a student a very long time ago, longer than people think, you know, I used to like rent my VHS, my, my video recorder. I don't know how many people remember that. And it was like £20 a month at the time, you know. So the reuse used to exist in the past, especially, you know, in wars and, you know, back in the kind of 60s, 70s, a lot more people reuse and countries like Cuba reuse all the time, to, you know, because it's hard to kind of find the distribution of things. But I've thought about this like why don't we just stop making 10 different versions of like ketchup or <laughs> 10 different versions of the same jumper and you know unfortunately that's kind of the commercial life and that's how businesses make money and um, you know I think there's a misconception it always gets kind of blamed on the consumer that the consumer doesn't want anything that doesn't look perfect but I think we've been programmed into that by companies to want that kind of perfection and you know from a marketing and branding point of view so I think we just need to kind of push back you know like for example um somebody sent me a mini christmas tree right in a box <laughs> this weekend and i kind of put it together and you know it's real it's a real tree and you know i was very like conscious about well the packaging and what do i do with the christmas tree afterwards and actually they thought about it they put it in a little document and what i really liked is they'd said that the paper so they they listed all the things in this packaging that would be recycled they listed all the reuse and they said that the tree could be replanted and it's a tree basically and I liked that and there wasn't anything that couldn't basically zero waste and you know they claim there was zero waste to landfill but actually they've done a good job with that because rather than just passing it to me as the consumer because of course they're zero waste right (laughs) because they don't have the product anymore but I might not be zero waste if I if I don't dispose of it properly so they kind of told me and they thought about it and actually that was really interesting to me but um I think you know brands need to educate and help the consumers more because it's all very well blaming the consumers and you know getting us fined and everything but ultimately companies are making products and you know legislation isn't helping with recycling either of certain plastics so we're still a few years off but still you know you get this impression when you talk to people that they want to do something all super glamorous and amazing and they completely disregard reuse and actually it could save them a lot of money and there's still that disconnect a little bit in the markets like they they go on this journey for three years trying to do something all super cool and complicated when actually and then they kind of come back and go okay we need to reuse now <laughs> you know so it's, it's kind of like that which i think is one of the things that you're trying to do with um, globe chain which is actually show to companies that reuse stuff that actually you get a huge amount of data on your esg impact positive impact by reusing and you know that maybe is the key to unlocking it if you if you actually say you know you, you're chasing your tail trying to make your linear product more sustainable actually if you reuse stuff you suddenly go here's loads of positive impact 
Yeah, completely. I mean, that's kind of how it started, right? Because um, I used to work in investment banking and we moved offices across the road and they disposed of furniture. We kept the buildings, by the way. So when I got talking to the guys, they were saying it cost them like £50,000 per person to make the move. And obviously that's logistics, new assets, uh, everything. And I just thought that's commercial madness. And why is no one digitalized waste? Turns out it's really hard <laughs> that's the reason but um you know i naively like put together a little site uh, you know and, and it's gloating to what it is today but what was really interesting is that i just thought why is no one giving it to people who need it so many people need it in the world and you know like every kind of tech company you think you go and get funding for these things and um six years ago you know this linear circular economy didn't even exist as a word. Sustainability didn't exist. It was more the CSR, and that was kind of human resources. And investors would ask me, like, what's your market cap? And there wasn't one, right? There'd never been any data on reuse because no one used that word. And there was actually very little data on the recycling stuff. It was more, you know, the big kind of waste firms putting quite a subjective view on what they class as recycling. So that's how the ESG data started because I knew – my gut was like, there is an industry here and why aren't we measuring the impact of how items help other people or communities? And I started building up ESG and again, no one knew what ESG was, but now roll on, you know, like five years, it, like ESG is the fashion now and this is how we're measuring after profitability, all these companies. And it is very interesting because I did a bit in, in preparation for this episode, I did a bit of Googling around what's the market cap of reuse or even re-commerce. And there's a bit of data out of the US growing massively. But it's almost like there's the manufacturing, the linear bit of the market. There's quite a lot of information around recycling now. But actually, reuse is way up the waste hierarchy in terms of reuse is better than recycling. But there's no data. There seems to be no information, no areas where you can find things in a consistent way it feels like it's either a market that doesn't exist or a market that's massively fragmented and is that one of the things that you've had to address when you reference digitizing waste is it an information problem or or a logistics problem or why isn't it more visible it's an information problem because nobody measured it right reuse because it, it was kind of like the underestimated solution <laughs> in the past and you know we, as, as I said we like we love to complex things right make things complicated and um, you know recycling has taken so many years to ingrain and it, there's so many sophisticated methods of recycling actually we're kind of going backwards now and going actually these things can't be recycled because we're making more complicated products so how can we reuse them so that was one of the areas you know I needed we needed to collect data on reuse nobody really did reuse in the way we did it as a marketplace for like the b2b world and the consumer world um you know it's very niche it's either in fashion textiles food you know so so we deal with quite a broad number of sectors and you know we're still building on that but the only way we can find reuse stats is based on what we've been doing over the six years and the data we've collected from the sectors and make assumptions on the market cap going forward so it's still not quite there and also from a waste perspective, you know, waste data wasn't collected in that way, right? It was, you know, tonnage to landfill or recycling. You wouldn't really know where the reuse went or the impact of where those items went afterwards. It just wasn't wasn't there. And how does the marketplace work then? How do you address that data piece then? Are you is it a case of 
building up an inventory and catalog and then do you use standard metrics to work out what the sort of positive impact is of reusing particular items? We use um, a different variation of methods, really. So obviously, we know kind of like the catalog of items, if you like, that companies list. We have APIs that we can plug into to systems where we can pull information quite accurately on weights and composition of materials. And actually, we're just adding in some machine learning now to understand the behavior of the clients. So that will build up over time. On the ESG and the social impact side, over time, we know where these items go because we can track them. But also, we get really lovely case studies from the charities and the businesses. So over time, you know, like a microwave new is worth this. The reuse value is this. It saved this charity money or it helped a homeless person come off the street or whatever it may be. So we, we've created that data and metrics based on what people want want as data rather than what we can collect, if that makes sense. Because too much data it's kind of worthless if you don't know how to use it properly. So we only collect data that clients kind of want and ask for. And um, this data was really interesting to us because it showed like it wasn't only a life for a new product, it could be a life for a new person, right? Or help um, a small business start a new project or save them money with office furniture or construction material can go and help build a school or an orphanage in Africa. And we, we were just getting more and more of these like amazing stories and feeding that back to the companies as a report was really powerful. That's a really interesting sort of take on the social element of it, because we often talk about the sort of social cost of manufacturing things in a linear way, particularly where we've globalized production and it isn't necessarily happening in countries with the best social uh, framework in place. But then to say we're going to take something and reuse it, and that's going to potentially save lives, build homes, create businesses is an incredible way, incredible way of doing it. Yeah. And also it's like the value of the data probably is much more valuable than the cost of saving money on disposing and landfill or incineration, right? Over time, you know, if a company can show how they've helped a local community or an apprenticeship or something, that helps them with valuations, bond risk, credit financing, IPOs, share pricing. And also from a consumer perspective, their reputation as a brand. You know, I mean, ESG is very broad. We, we deal on the waste side of things. But, you know, companies are looking now at that's how they're differentiating themselves, whether that's a construction firm, um, a retail brand, a consumer product. Really, at the end of the day, it's all ESG data just presented in different ways. To give listeners an idea of the the things that are um, reused through the globe chain marketplace, I mean, what what are the main items that you're seeing passing through? Yeah, so we have um, a lot of medical equipment that actually gets um, distributed to disaster recovery and charities abroad to rebuild hospitals. But really popular items, you'd be surprised. It's like lockers, (laughs) tables and chairs, wooden tables and chairs, like from restaurants, very powerful. Carpet tiles, because they're very sturdy and they can be stacked you know, squares and they can be moved around and they're very, they're very strong. And also things like ceiling tiles and lighting is very popular. The crazy things we've done in the past, we've done an air bridge for an airport (laughs) and that went to 
person that um, upcycles and actually buys plane parts and creates hotel rooms out of them. So that was uh, a crazy one. Another crazy one was a, a two million pound fuel cell and osmosis machine. And uh, we had three requests on that. Cause we're like, who's going to take that? And does anyone know what that is? Um, a university lab requested it. A charity in Africa requested it for an energy. Actually, we had a really bless them, a really sweet uh, nonprofit request it for recycling, but recycling is super expensive for something like that because it's really complicated to break down. So it was really interesting to see the craziness of that. But you know, we have things like laptops that go in five minutes, but um, more construction material than you think gets reused from the timber to the bricks to soil. So yeah, it's really varied, but we do see the same sort of stuff being taken and it's usually uh, for, for charities like homelessness, domestic violence, refugee camps to rebuild things. Yeah, I mean, amazing and amazing that there's so many of those things don't need to be aesthetically, you know, if you've got a piece of medical equipment that's saving your life, you're not really worried about if it's purple or green or if you've got bricks and pieces of wood going into behind a house. So Yeah, and it's very valuable, you know, like these things, these are bespoke bought brand new, you know, and they, but due to audits and policy and compliance, they have to be moved around and, and taken out of these hospitals. So people know the value of these goods and it saves these nonprofits and businesses a lot of money. And is reuse, I mean, from a company perspective or a, a health trust that's moving on a piece of uh, equipment, we talked about the behavioral aspect as well, but is it just a hassle to reuse? Because, you know, you've got to get out of a building, you've got the new machine arriving or the new furniture arriving. You've got to get things moved out. Is it just a complete hassle? And how are you solving people with the... And it's a bit like trying to send something back up the linear supply chain in many ways. And all of this new stuff coming at you. And you're like, oh, my God, my new thing's arriving. How do I get rid of the old thing? No, it's definitely um, it's twofold, really. Internally within organizations, it's behavior change, right? People think offering and donating items to nonprofits or people that need it. You know, if they're putting like 4,000 carpet tiles on, you know, we get asked, is someone going to pick ask for 10 carpet tiles <laughs> and stuff like that? And the answer is no. But in the past, obviously, you'd have to like pick up the phone and call up your kind of own database, right? It's time consuming. It's a hassle. And then, you know, sometimes some nonprofits in the past, you know, the perception is they're picky, they come and they don't want half the things. And that's kind of where technology comes in. And hopefully, like, that's how what Globechain is unique. You know, we're able to speak a language between individuals that want things, nonprofits, businesses with big corporations. And usually that language barrier of how each talk isn't translated well face to face. So we make the, the system super simple to book things in to allow it to seem almost more effortless obviously there's the collection aspect of that that requires logistics and we offer a courier service but they can go and book themselves but because they take free items the fact that they pay for the, the logistics makes them um, think of it commercially right so they're going is the value of the goods worth me spending a couple of hundred pounds or dollars picking up these items the answer is yes there tends to be very little no shows right because people respect things and you know individuals can take as well like companies they might be like the odd couple of chairs or tables that someone might want for their home like we had um somebody working from home they wanted it for their son 
for college, you know, a desk and a table, and you can give it away, but you can see who wants what, and people pick up big volumes. So that's what we're good at. We've broken that barrier, and we've also broken the barrier of speed because we have over 10,000 members. We have this network effect, right? And if anyone knows about network effects, the bigger the network, the quicker things get requested volume-wise. So it takes an average of 20 minutes when we send out alerts for things to be requested in bulk. And I think that's what makes it's special, right? That the perception of like, it takes too long. It's a hassle bringing people in. They don't know what they're doing. Kind of goes out the window. Obviously there's tweaks, you know, and you still have to kind of train people on how to use technology. And, you know, when they come onto construction sites, if it's an individual, how do you educate them on health and safety? But, um, you know, we, we do help companies work around that. You know, we've seen so many projects successful. We, we know the kind of challenges companies have from a let's say implementation the physical pickup side and that's sort of that key i mean that's that, to answer the question brilliant because it's actually it's a just getting that liquidity into the marketplace and you've got you know ten thousand users who are looking for items because some some office refurniture businesses tend to take everything back store it itemize it then then there's a whole problem because you're keeping things potentially for years whereas because you're getting liquidity in the marketplace you've got people who are coming and taking it away so you've cut out an entire part of the supply chain therefore shortening it and and giving that market liquidity which is uh very clever what you work with some big brands marks and spencers iss nando's um to name just a three are they taking reuse seriously or is this just a bit of an esg box ticking exercise for them yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm still surprised because obviously, you know, we work day in, day out, and I'm sure you know as well, Bruce, that um, people are like, oh, is this just a greenwashing exercise? I'm like, greenwashing was in the 90s and 2000s. <laughs> and, uh, and now, no, they're taking it super seriously. You know, it's taken them a few years to work out the modeling of it, the commercial side of it. And, you know, because it's so different from what they're doing at the moment, as you said, the linear model's been for years and that's how they know how to make money. Now they're having to restructure their whole business modeling, go to their shareholders and go, listen, we don't know if we're going to be making money in the next few years. We need to spend a bit of money changing the way we work. So I think that was very early days. I'd say now, you know, there's so many solutions in the market and so many opportunities and people thinking more collaboration. I think that stigma of like greenwashing, don't get me wrong, there's sectors still doing a bit of greenwashing with their PR and marketing, but I think people are more savvy now and can see through this. They're voting really with their pockets, you know, with their money really, aren't they? So if, if a company is not ethical or doesn't have the values of people anymore, people will do their research a bit more. And, you know, with social media now, you can't really hide with whistleblowing the way people incinerate things, you know, people are on to you. And also you're having to prove things you know especially with the data and the esg if analysts are looking at you or shareholders it's no longer just a paragraph in your sustainability with a picture of some children do you know showing that you've done good you need to go further because there's so much competition now so how are you going to differentiate yourselves so i'd say yes i'd say the people we're talking to the theory part has finished. You know, the first few years, I'd say you had all the consultants talking about theory and what linear and circular models look like. But now it's almost like, well, you've got to do it now. You know, you've been talking about it for two, three years. You put these zero waste, zero carbon targets in place by like 2030. You haven't really got long. So where are your solutions? And now people are like, oh, my God, like, 
where are solutions? We need to actually physically do it. So that, and I'd say now their budgets. People have had an opportunity when they're looking at annual strategies and budgets, they now incorporate a budget for sustainability. And I think that was a missing link in the past as well. I've been in sustainability for 30 years, so I've had a lot of, there's been a lot of talk, but finally now the money and the big businesses have actually got behind these goals. It doesn't take long to say you're going to be net zero by 2035 or 2040 or whatever you choose. The thing that's hard is activating those circular economy models, activating those net zero strategies and looking for solutions. I think it's absolutely key. And I guess it's the point of this show is to get people with uh, solutions on there. So really, really super interesting. And are there the, the sort of some big names mentioned there that are working with you very much on the reuse side of things? Are you working with the um, manufacturers, you know, I call them OEMs, the, the original equipment makers? Are you talking to them about taking their kit back, incorporating it, making it easier to reuse? You know, if you're looking at office furniture, for example, the number of times that you sit in a cheap office chair that's huge carbon footprint, loads of plastic and materials and foam rubber, but then there's just like a crappy handle that's snapped off and therefore it doesn't work very well. Are the OEMs taking this stuff seriously or do they see it as a threat? I think they're still a little bit behind with thinking that they can do everything themselves, you know, and, and want to do the complicated full circular. And I think, you know, it's going to take them another year or two to realize being full circular is really difficult to do all of it at once. So they have to kind of break it down. And and to be fair, it's not really their fault as well, right? Because their focus is like to, to manufacture things <laughs> and get it out there. So they have to look at kind of material product design first. That's where they need to start first. We are working with a couple of kind of um, workplace and facility providers that do do repairing, but I'm seeing it only really in kind of chairs and tables at the moment for like simple furniture that's composed of certain types of materials. So they're done really well. And there's a couple of firms that have been able to commercialize that kind of model of repair and like buyback for cheaper and doing well. But the challenge I see in the market for those models is the scalability of it, right? There's, um, I'm not seeing massive private funding on helping them scale because they need big kind of new machinery, new manufacturing, because some of these companies working manually with people, which is great because that's giving skills to people. But, um, you know, can you can you mass market that a thousand chairs? If a thousand chairs are brought back, can you repair those quickly within a week? Maybe some people can, I'm not sure, but it's definitely getting there. And um, there's, there's definitely, especially with working from home now that there are a lot of new models where there's leasing leasing and things like that so i think manufacturers need to probably think about where their business is in the next five ten years you know are they going to do the repairing themselves or are they going to allow these new companies to partner with them and and do that you know for them but um yeah we would we've spoken to a few to do with wood because wood legislation has changed recently so that's been really interesting but um yeah it's taking them a little bit of time i'd say they're looking more on the product design which quite rightly so but then i'm saying to them well we've got all this legacy stuff that's going to be in parallel to your new business model you know that's going to take you up to 2030 with your target so you need to kind of find a solution for that as well so we can we can match them with people that can repair things as well yeah and with sort of office furniture, it's a bit like cars as well, because I think if we're going to have no petrol cars by 2050, we have to stop selling them in 2030 because the average lifetime of a car is 20 years. And in the same way with office furniture, if we want it all to be 
have the ability to demanufacture and reuse it, then we need to get on with it pretty quickly because um, this office furniture is going to be sitting around for a long time. Really interesting sort of um, marketplace and so many challenges and opportunities. Will you put anything on the globe chain marketplace or are there certain criteria? So do you do, for example, clothing or is there sort of a needs to be an entire warehouse of clothing and you'll put it on there? Or is, is there a set of criteria of things that you will or won't, won't put on the marketplace? So, yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't have to be big bulk because uh, actually we had over the weekend some shoes put on. Um, you'll laugh. It's all the employees that never went back to their office. <laughs> and there's a bunch of shoes and random jumpers that nobody's claiming for quite a few months in, in an office. And um, they've given that away. And I'd say that's, you know, a small amount. Uh, so but we um, in Spain, we work with the Spanish op- uh, post office, Correos. And um, this is all the lost packages that never get to your homes. It's in their warehouse. And after a while, if they can't find you or, you know, you can't you can't contact them in the past, they'd have to incinerate. them. So now they list it and they list in big cages. And uh, for those lucky people in Spain, you're finding things like Nike trainers, like we're talking 20, 30 boxes, iPads, some amazing things. And as well, a lot of clothing, obviously, from all the uh, shops. Right. So that is almost like a lucky dip of mishmash of like, this is all clothing, uh, help yourself textiles. And we're finding the fashion industry is wanting to do their separate thing and trying to make money out of the secondary market and secondhand. So, you know, you have like sites like Depop, for example, that's on that. But it's kind of like a byproduct of reuse. It's not really focused on the, the sustainability side, right? And then obviously you've got the luxury designers trying to resell now, although they have IP infringement issues. And that's why they can't resell. In the past, they weren't, weren't able to resell. So I'd say there's challenges there for them on that side. But it's a new market and we're seeing a lot more of these like marketplaces where they're reselling. But nothing new in innovation, right? It's just a, a resale marketplace. But yeah, we've done textiles in the past roles. I'd say the only thing we don't do, we don't do food. We don't do hazardous waste for obvious reasons. So they never go on. And um, I'd say the, the most difficult kind of items would be really broken electricals because they have to be recycled really because unless somebody really knows how to put together, I don't know, a broken server unit <laughs> or something like that. There's not really much value in it. I mean, we've had things like a three-legged chair and I'm like, hmm, who's going to take that? You know, we've had like artists take it to upcycle it and we've had like broken ceramic art installations. But it's, if it's so broken, you can't reuse it, it probably won't go. But um, fixtures and fittings from retail stores get, get reused if they're a little bit um, damaged because they can be used for other other things, right? Yeah. I love the uh, idea that sort of the lost property of the Spanish postal system, or indeed anyway, you know, this sort of like um, lucky dip going out there. It's fantastic. And are you international or you've got, you're in the process of a rollout into, into specific companies or how, how does this, sort of, or, or is it anywhere in the world? Yeah, we've got UK and Ireland and Spain. And we also, we launched in COVID in New York and Texas very quietly. So next year, we're planning to do more of US. And we actually created something called internal reuse and loaning. So that's global. So if you wanted to connect all your locations, warehousing, whatever, internally within your own company or supply chain, you can actually reuse and loan your assets and inventory first internally. So again, that saves you money. We provide a different set of ESG data for that. So um, so that's what 
what we've got at the moment and um, obviously the logistics, integrating with external couriers for logistics to track things. That is very clever. So for some of these big companies with enormous, you know, multiple offices, long supply chains, naturally they can save money and, you know, reuse, get their positive impact before they even look anywhere else. Definitely. We've done that with a couple of healthcare trusts we do that with. And actually, um, we have a luxury retailer that has that globally as well in a construction firm. So May, what happened in your life that made you wake up to Globechain? And how did you get into saving the planet? It was purely by accident. And I didn't think like, oh, I want a startup and I want a global business, you know, when I first started. I was just brought up with, you know, the culture of like, don't waste anything. You know, I was born in Iraq, you know, brought up a British. And, um, and I just thought, gosh, you know, there's so many people out there in the world that need things. And the bank that I worked for, they were perfectly good pieces of furniture, you know, and we kept, we, we owned the buildings. So there's no need to pick new things. And it was the time where Airbnb and Uber were just becoming famous in the UK. So I was like, why is no one connected companies to people and nonprofits to reuse the stuff? So what I did was just sent out a few cold emails and um, actually the first company to trial with me back in the days was Arcadia Group. So um, for those of them not in the UK, it was the largest retailer in the UK with 2000 retail stores at the time. And, um, you know, I said to them, have you got an issue with furniture? And then I realized actually they were talking to me, no, but we have an issue with fixtures and fittings. We have no storage. We have to dispose of them. They're expensive. And then that kind of opened up a completely different sector. And we just played around with, you know, people have this misconception of like, you know, marketplaces, like you do a couple of marketing emails and you've got your network overnight. No, it's very manual. Do you know, there was a lot of meetings from both supply and demand building it up. And um, I naively thought I could go and get funding, like 150,000. You know, the VC said to me, what's your market cap? And that was like, well, there isn't one. And that's why I started in the ESG, because I wanted to prove there was a market. And then it took probably four years. So I self-financed it and fun funded it. I spent £800 on the first website. It was shocking, by the way. I don't know how Arcadia said yes to it. If I show you an image of it, you'd be like, that's not a website. That's like something dodgy. <laughs> and, um, and then from there, we started generating revenue. And then year four, uh, McKinsey, PwC, all these consultancy firms, uh, you know, wrote a report about something called circular economy, and it was worth 4.3 trillion. And I was like, that will do. <laughs> and I put that in my business plan, my pitch deck. And, you know, I got venture capital for just under a mil. So I was one of only 1% of females that raised over half a mil at the end of 2018 venture capital. So yeah, skip, skip the kind of family friends funding because I didn't know anyone. And I just went straight, jumped straight headfirst into the VC world. But um, actually that was great because it built our team and then, you know, it is what it is today on the back of that. What would success look like, May? And what is your biggest hurdle and challenge to seeing this success? On a personal level, and probably my team would feel the same, is like, can we get this global, you know, and make us be the leaders in reuse in ESG in this area, purely because we've been pushing the boundary so much. It's like how to do difficult businesses, marketplace, new economy, <laughs> reuse, female, ethnic minority. So I'm like, that would be an achievement. If we could do that in the next couple of years, it would be amazing. But also the impact to people, right, to show that, you know, our strapline is commercial with a conscience. And there's a lot of companies doing commercial 
sure they're conscious now, but it's to prove that businesses that do good can make money. And I think that would be our biggest achievement if we can be a really well, big, well-known brand where people are like, you know what, it's okay to make money, but actually we're balancing it with creating, generating impact. That's super interesting, May. And what would you like our listeners who are intently listening here to do differently and how should they change to help you succeed? So I think I think behavior change was a few years ago. So people are on it now. I think it's proving a different business model, right? And being able to scale business model and show that it can generate big amounts of revenue. So, you know, that's really up to me as a CEO and founder to prove right, and the visionaries of other companies to really push this market um, and also corporates to get behind it, you know, and embrace other businesses and work with them and, you know, not think they can do everything themselves because um, they can't, you know, some things you just can't, can't do for many reasons. And so I'd say that is the biggest challenge. And also, you know, we are VC backed. So the venture capital market, I don't feel is there yet in understanding this model because they can't put it in a spreadsheet. And it, it's, it's not a model where, you know, like in three years, thank you very much. And we don't care about it afterwards. You know, this, this model, it should be like a legacy model, right? Where it just grows and grows and grows. I'd say that's the challenge in scaling it and bringing in revenue that's like acceptable to the markets, <laughs> and that's all, which I believe will happen. That's fascinating stuff, May. Really interesting. And what's coming up in the next few months that you're most excited about? I'm excited. We've got a couple of exciting things next year and obviously scaling to the US. So I'm excited about that. And, you know, we're ready to really kind of like go big, <laughs> go big or go home because our technology is pretty solid now. So it's exciting. Things are speeding up. So I'd say that and uh, one particular product we're working on at the moment. May, if you could ask people to do just one thing to help tackle climate change, what would you choose? I think ask the questions, right? Whether that's you're buying a product, you're reading where the product's from, you're giving feedback. That's where you can do it. It's not about like, I'm not going to say, oh, go and recycle more and, you know, put, put the responsibility on the consumer or the individual. But, you know, if you push for those awkward questions that nobody likes asking, you know, like I got something uh, back from an e-commerce site and I said to them, well, what are you going to do when I return this product? Are you going to burn it? <laughs> you know, over 60% of returns are burnt. So get them thinking about that a little bit more. The more people that ask those awkward questions, you're going to get change, right? May, we've nearly come to the end of the show, but we have a little thing called the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, where we ask our amazing guests to leave something in our Hall of Fame. What would you put in the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame? A tree because we might not have any in the future and that's what we need to breathe and as, as I read somewhere it's the most sophisticated technology for carbon removal <laughs> which I love so um, you know remind everyone that the tree is uh, uh, the most powerful thing for us that's brilliant Maine. I think trees are a worthy worthy addition to the hall of fame now we're nearly there how do listeners find you um, you go to globechain.com, so G-L-O-B-E-C-H-A-I-N. And um, obviously you can contact us through there or obviously I'm on LinkedIn and other areas. 
May from Globe Chain, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and super fascinating learning what you are up to at Globe Chain. You've been a super guest on Zero Five O, and thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.